Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would cause us to experience you through your word, by the power of your spirit, in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to fear you, and we pray that your overwhelming holiness would make your mercy all the more precious to us. And Father, we ask that this mercy would mark us, that we would be people who, by the way we live, by the way we talk to people, by the way we give, by the way that we go, by the way that we sing your praise, Lord, we pray that it would be evident that we have experienced your mercy. And Father, we pray this, that you might have the glory forever. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Romans chapter 11, and we will be looking this morning at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And this text, this passage, these four verses, they feel to me like the holy of holies of the Bible. Uh, they, it, it, it feels as though we have entered into the camp where everything is to be clean, and then we have uh, passed by uh, Moses and Aaron who are encamped there at the doors of the tabernacle, and we've entered into the holy place as we've worked through Romans 9 through 11, and now uh, we've come to the inner curtain, and at this point, Paul is about to take us behind the veil into the very presence of God. And as I think about this, it seems to me that, you know, as you read the instructions for approaching the tabernacle, everything there is holy, and again and again and again, the Israelites are warned that the priests have to do things a certain way lest they die. And as I was thinking about what it's like to approach God in His holiness and, and how we should feel, the fear of God that we should feel in response to the presence of the living God, uh, what came to my mind was the way that our family, last, last winter, we went up to South Dakota and the Osterlings took us out to this frozen lake. And in the middle of this frozen, I mean, the lake was solid ice, and I don't know how deep the ice went. It, it might have gone all the way down for a It was really cold. And, and cropping out of that ice is this massive rock, and it's actually the rock that's in one of those national treasure movies that the guy sticks his hand down into. Maybe you can visualize the scene. So, so they take us out to this rock, and for whatever reason, our son Isaiah, who had just turned five, had to have had the worst snow boots in the world on. I mean, he couldn't take three steps across that ice without like his feet going out from under him and him being on his face on the ice. And then our, our older kids start going up that rock like, a gazelle, like gazelles, you know, they're just running up that thing. And I don't like heights to begin with, much less heights where there are you know, frozen, hidden patches of ice under snow that look like they're going to be stable, and they're not. Well, Isaiah starts up this rock, and, and we, get up, we get up a good way on this rock. We're up high enough 
too high for, for my taste. And, and then on the backside of this rock, it's just a straight drop off. And there's this gentle slope and you can see some ice on that slope and then it goes straight down onto that granite-like surface of the frozen lake. And I see this and Isaiah's like tottering around and I grab him, you know, and pull him close to myself. And J.O. says to me, yeah, if he goes over there, he dies. That's what the fear of God is like. You enter into his presence. He is so holy that one misstep and it's over. That's why we fear him. And it's good to fear him. And it makes the instructions and the warnings and the prohibitions, it makes it all precious to us. And what Paul has been doing, really, is explaining how God gave fair warning to Israel and they disregarded his instructions. And earlier in the service, Caleb read to us of how the Lord said to them, the Lord told them, Deuteronomy 29.4, you don't have the heart that you need to pay attention to God's word. And then these warnings start coming about how if they disregard God's word, they will experience God's awful justice. And, and it's as though what Paul has explained here in Romans 9 through 11 is really the inner secret of the universe. Because what Paul has, has outlined here is how God has set things up so that he is going to show justice to a group of people. And what that justice is going to do is make his mercy all the more precious for those who experience it. And in some ways, I think what Paul has done in Romans 9 through 11 is, is give us some insight into that verse that Caleb read earlier in the service, Deuteronomy 29, 29, when it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may obey all the words of this law. I think some of the secret things, it's like if, 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 you, if you work through that passage, it's like Moses has said to Israel, you don't have the heart you need to keep the law. And if you don't keep the law, God's going to judge you for not keeping the law. And then if the Israelites say, well, why would God set it up this way? Moses' response is, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed, the law, it, it belongs to us so that we can obey it. But the, why he does it this way, these are secret things. And now what Paul has done is he's come along and explained how the hardening of Israel has resulted in the gospel going to the nations. And in the midst of God's sovereign working, people are still responsible. The, Israel, the Israelites, they did hear the gospel. God was sovereign over whether or not they got saved, but they heard the gospel and they didn't believe. They tried to earn their salvation. So God is sovereign, but they're responsible. And, and all these Gentiles are now hearing the gospel. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how Paul, it's like he understands all the Gentiles have to hear the gospel before the Jews can get saved. And so he throws himself into this plan that God had this mystery that God has revealed to him and he embraces it and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And then Paul outlines, as we look, as we saw last week, how at the end, once all the Gentiles have heard the gospel, Christ will return and all living Israelites will turn to him. And this brings Paul to this exclamation here in Romans 11, verse 33. And, and we have to ask ourselves, as we look at Paul marveling at God's resources and God's wisdom, we have to ask ourselves, why is Paul 
marveling. And so here, here's, here's a proposal as an answer to that question. Why is Paul marveling? He's marveling because his desire for the Jews to be saved has been temporarily thwarted. And the thwarting of his desire has resulted in good things that God had planned for all of us and all the Gentiles across the ages who heard the gospel. And then God is going to turn and show mercy again to the Jews. So if I were to go back to that illustration, it would be almost like we get up on that rock and we disregard the, the ice and we ignore that the ledge... And we go over and we go crashing down and our bodies lie dead on the ice. And God in his enormous mercy comes and gives new life to us. This is like what Paul is talking about when he says, for instance, there in verse 12 of Romans 11, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? And then in verse 15, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul has been describing how God is going to give new life to his covenant people and keep these promises that he's made to them. And that brings him to this glorious celebration of, of, of God here in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. So he's going to start with God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. Let's look together at Romans 11, verses 30, verse 33, where Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth. We're, we're talking about a depth that is infinite, really. We're talking about a, a deep that has no bottom. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Um, I heard this week about these seven wonders of the natural wor world. One of the seven wonders of the natural world is called Challenger Deep. It's the deepest part of the Mariana Trench out in the ocean uh, over there in, in, in the Pacific. Um, you know, Mount Everest, Mount Everest is a little bit over 29,000 feet. The deepest parts of Challenger Deep are almost 36,000 feet. They're like 5,000 feet in a mile. That means that if you were to take Everest and turn it upside down somehow and put the bottom of it on the surface of the ocean and go all the way to the tip of it, you'd have another mile, more than another mile to go down before you got to the bottom of Challenger Deep. And we're talking about a deep that has no bottom. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. If you can, imagine what Paul is describing here. Paul is describing God's plan to show mercy to responsible people who deserve judgment, but he's going to show mercy to them, and these people are going to be raised from the dead by God's infinite power and given glorified bodies and, and they are going to enjoy God's infinite glory in a world of everlasting joy. That's what has Paul saying. And there are going to be vast multitudes of Jews and Gentiles who are going to be fully aware of the justice that they deserve because of those who did not receive mercy. 
And that is what is prompting Paul to say, oh, the depth of the riches. Think with me about God's riches for a moment. Just, just in the book of Romans, think about his riches. Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Romans 9, 23, God is, is he's enduring with much patience, 9, 22, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And then we read just a second ago, Romans 11, verse Verse uh, 12, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. we're, We're talking about wealth that we can't even begin to get our heads around. Romans 10, 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Yesterday, my sons and I, we were talking about, we were talking about cars and you know, licenses and insurance and all this business. And it reminded me of, of Steve Jobs, who apparently got a new car every six months because he didn't want to deal with registration. He didn't want to deal with license plates. So he just bought a new car. And then when the, when the, you know, the dealer tags that he, that he got ran out, he would just send that one back and get a new one again. Because he had so much money, it didn't matter. And we're talking about a, a wealth that you, you could come to the end of Steve Jobs' wealth. And people that rich have come to the end of their wealth. We're talking about a wealth, God's riches, that you will never come to the end of, ever. And I would invite you to apply this to your life. I want to ask you to consider this question. How would you live if a father with infinite wealth had adopted you and assured you of his favor? How would you live if a father with infinite resources at, your, at his disposal had adopted you into his family and assured you of his kind, gracious, happy disposition toward you? Now, I'm not suggesting that you be, you know, a lascivious spendthrift who doesn't care for how, what you do with your money. You, sh- you should be a good steward of what's been entrusted to you. What I'm suggesting is in the same way that at any need, you would go to that father. You should go to the father. And what I'm suggesting is that there should never be a lack of confidence when you go to that father that he can provide. Think of what Paul says in Philippians 4. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, again, we, we, we go like he's God, right? We have to fear him. We... So it's, there's this curious balance between we go boldly, but we don't go presumptuously. The, the, word, the author of Hebrews uses that word boldly. We go with confidence, in faith, believing, but we don't go acting like we can just take whatever we want as though he's not holy. We can touch whatever we want. No, he's, he's holy. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I think it's, it's uh, true to say that knowledge is knowing things, understanding how things work, knowing facts about how things are built and put together and all the rest. 
And wisdom is using that knowledge well with skill. So, so God has this infinite knowledge and he has this infallible wisdom. And, and as I was trying to think of an illustration of this, I thought of a, a movie that um, our family recently watched and, and we also listened to the, the uh, book that it's based on, Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie, because Hercule Poirot, you know, the hero of that movie, he is so knowledgeable and he is so wise. It's like he has the relevant facts for every case that he's asked to solve at his disposal and he has this perfect understanding of human nature so that he can almost predict how the people involved in the case are going to respond. And so what looks like an insoluble mystery, he's able to untangle. With, with, with no internet, no Google, no Wikipedia, he doesn't need to look anything up because he knows so much and he understands with perfect wisdom. And again, we're, we're, that, that's just a... Uh, a human creation, a human character that some novelist came up with. And what we're reading about here is the infallible wisdom of God, the infallible wisdom of the omniscient God. How do we apply this to our lives? You know, God's knowledge and understanding and wisdom is revealed to us in the Scriptures. And I hope that this question that I'm about to ask you convicts everybody in the room. Does your study of the scriptures indicate that you believe that it reveals God's wisdom to you? We, we all, we all have room for improvement in terms of our approach to the scriptures and our confidence that it's going to reveal God's mind to us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He goes on and he asks this, these, these two questions. So he's got this exclamation that, that begins verse 33, and then he has two questions that follow up. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways? Both of those questions are really getting at the same thing. They're getting at the way that when God walks through the waters, he leaves no footprints. When, when God makes his way through your life, He's going to do it in such a way that it's unsearchable and inscrutable. And we can, you know, the glory of God is to conceal a matter and the glory of a king, the Proverbs say, is to search that matter out. We can, we can do our best at searching out those matters and we will, we will never detect everything that God is up to. God is beyond us. His capacities are beyond us. His perceptions are beyond us. We... We cannot exhaust who he is. We cannot anticipate where he's going to go next. He's everywhere. And so the, the question that this presents us with is, are we willing to trust him? Are we willing to trust God's grasp of the facts and his ability to discern justice? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways? Are we willing to trust him? When, when the appearances don't seem to be going our way, when the circumstances of our lives are not what we would have them to be, are we willing to trust him? That, that, those are the kind of people we want to be. We want to be the pe kind of people who say, I don't see his hand, but I trust his heart. I don't see his footprints, but I know he's here. 
And we want to be those kind of people, even if our circumstances are like Paul's. And we've talked as we've made our way through Romans 9 through 11, we've talked about how Paul saw his kinsmen according to the flesh, for whom he felt that unceasing anguish and great sorrow in his heart, for whom his heart's desire and prayer to God for them was that they would be saved. He's longing for their salvation, and he's trusting the Lord. And as you make your way through these chapters, you notice again and again and again, Paul is explaining what God is doing by unfolding the Old Testament. So this tells us that Paul's, one, of Paul's, one aspect of Paul's response to Jewish unbelief was to go reread the Scriptures. And lo and behold, there it was, that God didn't give them the heart they need, that he hardened their hearts at various points. It was all prophesied and predicted there for him. And that's much of what he's explained here here in Romans 9 through 11 as he's walked through the scriptures, along with all these ideas that God is going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So in various ways, all through our lives, the, the Lord is going to afflict us and make it where we don't have what we want and things don't go the way that we want them to go. And if we'll respond as Paul has, where we search the scriptures and we seek to know God, He will give us wisdom. He will give us the the ability to respond with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. And at this point, Paul starts quoting the Old Testament again. And here in verse 34, he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. And And he asks this question, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? You know, when when we here at church, the elders, when we come up with a plan, we bring the plan to the other elders. We don't make decisions all all by ourselves. We don't, I don't just decide we're going to do something. No, Um, I come to the elders with a proposal, and then we discuss it. And then we might leave it on the table and go away and seek counsel from other members of the congregation. At various points, probably some of you will know. I'll go home and talk to Jill about it. What do you think about this? We, we have these counselors around us. And what Paul is saying here is God has never taken counsel from anyone, ever. There is no one who has ever come alongside the Lord and said, actually, you know, I understand that you didn't think of this. This is the kind of thing that my wife, you didn't think of this because you're a male, <laughs> but this is the way this is going to land on the females. The Lord doesn't need that kind of help. He doesn't need that kind of counsel. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And then in verse 36, here again, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. And at this point, what he gets at it's like he returns to the riches. And and he he asks this question, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You know, the the kinds of gifts that are in view here are the kinds of gifts that maybe you saw the movie The Godfather, or maybe you read the book The Godfather. And, And in those situations, you've got somebody who has a lot of resources at their disposal, and they're perfectly willing to help people. But with that help comes obligations. And, and, and in, in, the, in the novel, The Godfather, there's this scene where, where someone needs, I don't remember if it was legal help, they need, they need help of some, some sort. And everybody around them is saying, you need to go to Don so-and-so. 
And so here he comes with the request. He comes to this, this feared um, godfather who's over this, this you know, underworld crime organization, and the godfather just throws his arms wide open. And he wraps his arms around this guy, and he says, you should have come to me earlier. I'm glad to help you. But the help always comes with strings. Because there's going to come a day when the godfather is going to need a favor. And he's going to call in that favor. And what this text is saying is that there is no mafia boss that has any strings on the Lord. Anywhere. Who has first given a gift that he should be? Nobody. Nobody. You know, the only way to stay free of those mafia bosses is to never accept anything from them. Robert Moses, I've been listening to this book about this guy named Robert Moses who was a, he was a builder in New York City and he was like a city official and, and he was almost like a, like a legal mafia boss, the way that he accumulated power and the way that he called in favors. And, and there's an account of one of these guys who avoided his clutches and, and the way that he avoided his clutches is early on in his career, he was told, don't ever accept anything from Robert Moses. Don't accept a ride. Don't accept an invitation to lunch. Don't accept an offer of help of any kind. Don't ever accept anything from Robert Moses. Otherwise, you will be his slave. And that kind of freedom is the kind of freedom that the Lord has. Who has given a gift to him that he might be? Nobody. Nobody. The Lord is under obligation to nobody. So I would invite you to to just begin to consider God's wealth. And I hope that as we think about God's wealth and God's wisdom and God's knowledge and God's inscrutable judgments, His inscrutable ways and His unsearchable judgments, I hope, I hope one thing will start to rise up within your heart, and that is confidence and trust and, and a commitment at flowing out of that confidence and trust to call on him at every need. And there are massive needs all around us. You know, as, as we began to, or as I was thinking about this and praying through this yesterday and, and studying it yesterday, you know what came to my mind? Last night, yesterday afternoon, I'm, I'm working over this, and, and I know that later in the evening, we're going to walk across the street to the neighbor's back patio for a cookout. And I'm going to be surrounded by unbelievers. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, you can turn their hearts. There is nothing stopping you from giving life to these people. Would you give me opportunities to speak the gospel to them? Would you forge relationships between me and them that make them trust me and willing to meet with me, to, meet, to read the Bible? Would you do this for us, Lord? You lack nothing to bring this about. God's wisdom and wealth and knowledge and judgments and ways, these things, they cause us to trust him, not only for, for, these, for evangelistic prayers, but also in all the different vagaries of our circumstances. In, in, as our lives unfold and maybe things don't go the way we want them to go, we can trust him. We can call on him. And, and we should pray boldly for the nations in response to this. We should pray boldly along the lines of what William Carey said. 
William Carey urged people to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I'm, look, the people that have gone out from us, they're going into dark places. Not many Christians there. No, no cultural uh, sort of milieu where Christianity makes sense. Just the opposite. And they are going into those places and they are asking people. They're trying to build relationships with people and then trying to present the gospel to them in such a way that these people are ready to bet the rest of their lives on Jesus. They're, they're going to risk everything on him. They're, they're going to they're lose their families, likely. They could lose their jobs. They're going to become so, social outcasts in their culture. They're going to become these lone duck Christians now in their culture. That's what... That's what the people that have gone out from us into these dark cultures, that's what they're going there. We should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. William Carey, when he went to India, eight years before one guy converted. Eight years of faithfully trying to plow the soil and sow the seed and water the seed. We should pray for gospel opportunities in our own lives. We should attempt gospel opportunities in our own lives. And here, here's an unrelated application of this, I think. If this is the God that we served, these depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge and unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways, and this mind that no one has known, and this wealth that makes it where he doesn't need any gifts... You know, I, I don't doubt that there are people in your life that frustrate you. They may be the people that you're closest to. And you can pray for this God to transform those people's lives. You can pray for this God to turn these people's hearts so that, so that they love Him, so that they follow Him, so that they serve others. And we can trust God to do it. He has said that well, Paul has said that he will complete the work that he begins in people. At the end, look at verse 36. Paul explains this, the exclamations and then the questions that follow. He explains, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. You know, this is just, it's like a deduction that you could draw from Genesis chapter 1. And Hebrews 1. From him is everything. There is nothing that exists that the, that the creator God did not make. From him are all things. And Hebrews 1 says that by the word of his power, the Lord Jesus is sustaining the worlds. Everything is sustained by God. Everything comes from him. Everything is held in being by him. And to him are all things. Everything has its ultimate goal, the glory of God. What this means is that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens in the world. It, it also means that somehow, one way or another, God is going to get glory from everything that happens in the world. From him and through him and to him are all things. Our question in response is, what does it look like for us to embrace this and pursue godliness in response to this?
from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. It's like, it's like through a study of the Old Testament, Paul has seen all the puzzle pieces fall into place. And, and everything just clicks perfectly. And, he, and, it, and, and God's plan for human history comes together before him. He's exposited, exposited all of it for us here in Romans 9 through 11. And, and then there's this exclamation of praise that concludes what he's been explaining for us here in Romans 11, 33 through 36. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not someone who identifies as a Christian. You're not someone who has consciously trusted Jesus as, as Christians, what, what, we're, what we'd like to say to you is, wouldn't you like to have this God as your father? Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to be able to trust that the God to whom you have committed your life is actually the God that has made the world, is actually the God who's giving you breath right now and sustaining your life, and is a God who is so powerful and so good that he's able to guarantee that everything is going to work out for his glory? You can trust that God if you will turn away from your rebellion against him and, and embrace the Savior, the Lord Jesus, that he sent to die in your place, you can have this God as your father. You can approach with confidence this God of infinite wealth and wisdom and goodness and glory. We got a lot of needs here at Kenwood Baptist Church. We, we are in a very needy neighborhood, and this God can change these people's lives. There's no doubt. This God can help people beat heroin or whatever other opioid addiction they might be dealing with. This God can, can take somebody who's addicted to gambling and make them free of those things. This God can make it where we're a small church of limited resources, but his, his resources aren't limited. And I don't know, I'm confident he's going to meet all our needs according to his glorious riches. You'll be hearing about some of those needs in coming days. Um, this God is going to meet those needs. There's no doubt that he can. We have to be faithful to call on him to do it. And what a joy to walk by faith. I may have told you this story uh, before, but when I was in seminary, it's a great thing to be a small church of limited resources because of reasons like this. When I was in seminary, um, I didn't have any money. And... Um, and I, my job didn't pay me enough money for me to pay for tuition and my living expenses. And I, and I made the need known at church, and people prayed for me, and the Lord provided for me a free place to live. I lived in, the, in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Dallas, Texas, and this elderly lady, she was 91 years old at the time, and she had her home, there was a, a, a garage that was not attached to her home, and above the garage... Um, someone had built out a little apartment. I mean, it was a little apartment. Denny lived there after I, after I got married. Um, it was a small little place, and our responsibility was to call Mrs. Laird every day and just check on her, just make sure she hadn't fallen. Just, Miss Laird, how you doing every, this afternoon? You know, she just wanted somebody to check in on her. And, and here I, I'm across the street from us was this wealthy guy. He was a young businessman in Dallas, and... Um, he had everything he could need. He, he was like 30 years old, and he was already living in one of the nicest neighborhoods in Dallas, Texas. And we met, and it turned out he was a Christian. He went to this church that was a really good church in Dallas, and, and he came across the street, and he was looking at this little garage apartment that I was living in, and he goes, you know, I kind of envy you. And I'm like, 
are you talking about? You envy me. You've got everything. You're already living in university parks. How in the world could you envy me? And he goes, you have to walk by faith. And he goes, I know I have to walk by faith too, but my paycheck's coming regularly, and there's plenty in it. And you have to trust God for every dollar. And I kind of envy that. That's a great place to be. It's a great place to be as a church. God will get glory from us as we trust him. We trust his wisdom. We trust his resources. He's a great God. From him and through him and to him are all things. Let's expect great things from God and let's attempt great things for God. Let's attempt world evangelization. Let's attempt the evangelization of this neighborhood. Let's all of us attempt the evangelization of our immediate neighbors. And let's encourage those missionaries that have gone out from us. I was talking with a, a pastor of another church this week, and I asked him, I said, how often, what's, what's you guys plan to try to get overseas to see the people that you've sent out from, a, from you? And he said, we try to send one elder to every missionary once a year. I was like, wow, that's, that's impressive. There, the Lord has resources to make it possible for us to do that. There's no doubt. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you make us so confident of your wisdom and your goodness and your wealth that we never cease to call on you for our needs. And Lord, would you make it so that we never conduct ourselves like we doubt you. Lord, we don't know your ways, all of them fully, and we know we can't see your footsteps, and we know that, that you're inscrutable, unsearchable. Lord, would you give us confidence even in that, that we can trust you. And Father, we pray that you would do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. God, we pray that you would get abounding glory from this congregation. We pray that you would make our hearts overflow with praise for you. And we pray that our neighborhoods would be transformed. We pray that this neighborhood would be transformed. We pray that, that the nations, the ethnicities, would hear the gospel, and that this church would be a part of it. Lord, you've given us such a massive task, and we pray that, that we would trust you and that we would call on you and that by grace, through faith, as faith works through love, you would do great things through us as we attempt great things for you. And we pray this in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen.